I don't know what I would have done if I had had that kind of access to Tumblr and MS Paint in my young teenage years. Welcome to You're Wrong About, the podcast where we take events from your high school years and tell you how they didn't happen the way you think they did. And if you're Sarah, events from your elementary school years when you were also watching the news because you had an adequate number of friends. I'm Michael Hobbs. I'm a reporter for The Huffington Post. I'm Sarah Marshall. I'm a writer for The New Republic and BuzzFeed. And oh, I always say some third place, but what is it? The Believer. The Believer. And we have again our special guest, our first repeat guest, Rachel Monroe. I'm so honored to be here, and I am a writer for a bunch of places, including The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and I'm writing a book which has a whole Columbine section. Yes. And today we're talking about the Columbine shootings, which are actually the reason why I wanted to do this podcast. (gasps) Really? I forgot about that. Columbine and the McDonald's hot coffee case. I remember the you're wrong about style debunkings of these events and it completely turning my entire world upside down as far as epistemology and how I thought about the media and how I thought about my relationship to history and the rest of the country. I just thought, if we got these wrong, what else did we get wrong? And so I've been obsessed with Columbine for years just because almost everything in the particular is wrong. The general is right, but every detail we got completely upside downishly wrong. Yes. But Rachel, as a fellow Columbine obsessive, do you want to <laughs> tell us what you remember about the day? Especially because I'm writing about it. Like, I so wish that I remembered the day. I don't. I remember the vague aftermath. I think I was a sophomore in high school, and the thing that freaked everybody out was that our high school, I went to a public high school in Richmond, Virginia, we had the same school colors, we had the same mascot, we had, it was a school was like the same size, we had the same kind of like conservative, Christian, hierarchical thing going on. I mean, that's also like a narcissistic teenager thing to do, It'd be like, it was basically our high school that got shot up, but I do remember feeling like that or at least feeling like I I know this world and this is as it is shocking it is also not shocking mm-hmm. what about you do you do you remember it I remember it because I got in a car accident that day it was my oh, first no. and only car accident and an elderly woman oh. pulled out into traffic in front of me and hit my car and I was <laughs> fine she was fine the whole thing was just kind of more rattling than anything else but I get out of my car kind of shaken and I walk over to this woman and I'm like, uh, you just hit my car. And she goes, there was a school shooting today. And I was uh, like, what? No, what? What? <laughs> what, what? Let's, let's talk about the immediate issue here, which is that you, you've rammed into my car. And I remember like there were, you know, like there always is with a car accident, there were bystanders. People would come by. And I remember being really annoyed that all the bystanders wanted to talk about was this school shooting in Colorado. Wow. And I was like, no, no, this is about me right now. I'm <laughs> like, as a teenage boy, I was like, no, no, I'm the focus of attention right now. I got into a car accident. And then it was only later that night when I finally got home and the, you know, insurance and the cops and all that stuff was over. And my parents were like, no, you really need to focus on what's going on right now. And then it was like two weeks, I remember, of just wall-to-wall coverage of this totally inexplicable event. There had been a couple of suicides or... There were smaller shootings, yeah. Kip Kinkle in Oregon was one of the pre-Columbine 
ones? There were five, I think. There were in 1997 and 98. But they were, yeah, they were all like two kids. They killed two people. That often they would like kill the parents. And yeah, they would kill like one or two or three kids. Yeah. And it seemed like they were targeted. It was like, I hate Jeff. So I'm going to go kill Jeff. It didn't seem this, this indiscriminate killing and mass killing at a school by babies was something that just nobody was prepared for and was totally unfathomable. And we spent so long trying to figure out why afterwards. What do uh, what do you remember, Sarah? Because you were in elementary school, yeah? I was at a private girls' parochial school in Honolulu, which makes okay. it sound like I went to elementary school in the 1930s. And I must have at some point heard some news report on the radio in the car with my mom and that we would have, I have a vague memory of us talking about it. And I don't remember thinking of it as something that really affected me. I remember... I remember aspects of it, but not how I felt about them emotionally. Like, I remember the She Said Yes book. We should definitely talk about that. I mean, most of the information in this episode is going to come from Dave Cullen's book, Columbine, which came out 10 years after Columbine. And he spent 10 years in Littleton, Colorado, interviewing what sounds like hundreds of people, including the main investigators of the case and Dylan Klebold's parents. Hmm. But there were also some interesting analyses that aren't from him, just in the academic literature. And one of the ones I found mentioned it was too... Two weeks before the New York Times didn't have a Columbine story on the front page. Wow. The whole country talked about this over and over and over again. It says news magazines on the four main broadcast networks devoted 43 pieces to the attack. Wow. But the past really does seem like a foreign country where this Mm. was something that we could not stop thinking and talking about. And it launched this entire inquiry into American bullying culture and what is wrong with American teenagers. Those were kind of the two questions that we kept asking ourselves. Another interesting statistic, I think that is from the Cullen book, was that it was apparently the second most covered news story of the 90s. The only one that was more covered was the OJ trial. Whoa. It felt like a new idea, but at the same time, it felt like something people maybe intuitively knew or understood that there there was something right. there's something wrong with the children think of the children but not like that and their secret lives the the children and their secret lives yeah and to me what seems like the the thing that really shocked people about columbine aside from the number of victims which was 11 right 13 15 if you count the killers to me what seems to have really been a paradigm breaker for people was the idea of teenage boys deciding not just to kill one person or to kill out of revenge or for some material motive or something like that but just to have the desire to annihilate human beings and it didn't even matter who yeah rachel do you want to walk through the actual the events of april 20th 1999 and just put on the table all the facts and all the myths about what actually occurred yeah i mean i guess one thing to say is that columbine was never we all think of it as a shooting but it was never particularly intended as a shooting it was supposed to be a bombing because They were very focused on like body count. You know, can we get 100? Can we get 200? Can we get 500? And they wanted to beat Timothy McVeigh's record. Yeah. They did it on the anniversary of Waco and the Oklahoma City bombing. I didn't know those both took place on April 19th. But they were aiming for April 19th because they wanted to hit the anniversary of those events and to top them. But because they couldn't get ammunition from this pothead friend of theirs who was giving them ammo... 
they ended up pushing it to April 20th. So this whole thing about they did it on Hitler's birthday and stuff was just a random total coincidence. It wasn't about Hitler, it was about Timothy McVeigh. Yeah. But that's so interesting <laughs> that, yeah, that there wasn't, there wasn't sort of a, the template for them was not other kids who shot one kid at their school, but were right. like these terrorists. Let's say briefly who the two people are. Oh, yeah. It's Eric Harris, who was 18 at the time, old enough to buy guns, crucially, and Dylan Klebold, who was 17 at the time. They had been planning this for more than a year, or at least vaguely planning this for more than a year. They had built a bunch of pipe bombs. They had gathered up a bunch of guns. They came up with this plan of blowing up propane tanks, like the kind that you attach to gas grills. But they hadn't actually tested this concept of blowing up propane tanks. But still, with their teenage hyperconfidence, they just decided this will work. And so they set up one propane tank out way out in the suburbs. I love how you're being critical of them. You're like, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, what's the first thing you think about when you hear those names? I know, <laughs> inadequate planning for a major event. The worst thing about them is their overconfidence, obviously. So they set one <laughs> bomb out in the sort of in the woods outside of Littleton. And their idea was we'll blow that up at around 11 a.m. And then all the cops will rush out to the site mm. where this bomb blows up then we will have as much time in the school to do whatever we want because they'll be distracted. Mm -hmm. So then they also put two propane bombs in the cafeteria of their school. And this is really chilling that according to Cullen's book, Eric Harris had actually sort of cased the joint. They had mm. three different lunchtimes at Columbine. And he picked the time that would have the most people in the cafeteria because it was mm -hmm. kind of in between the two lunches or it was the most crowded lunch or something. So he knew wow. the most people possible would be in the cafeteria. And he also knew that if both of these propane bombs exploded, the roof would cave in and the library was above the cafeteria. So that would also kill all the kids that were in the library because a lot of kids went to the library to study during lunch. So they were going for wow. mass indiscriminate killing. So their plan was to blow up the thing way out in the suburbs, blow up the cafeteria, then wait outside the school and shoot kids as they came running out of the school, these survivors. They also put propane bombs in their cars in the parking lot. The cars were parked where they figured the ambulances would be staged. Oh. And so they thought they were pretty sure by this point, by the time that the paramedics and the ambulances and all that kind of was responding, they would be dead. And everybody would have thought, oh, it's over. Now we just have to deal with the wounded. And mm. then oh my God. it was time so that like, as people were being loaded into the ambulance, the bomb would go off wow. like after their Ugh. death and kill the paramedics. It feels like the kind of plan that would come from someone who had studied military strategy. His father was a military guy. I can imagine this being a friendship that's centered on this as a shared activity. Yeah, they wrote about this in each other's yearbooks. In the same way that kids talk about, I don't know, the fantasy football league that they're into. I mean, this was just something that Eric and Dylan talked about a lot. It seems like really the basis of their friendship. And like a shared fantasy life. Yeah, they had this like secret language along with it. They called it NBK, natural born killers. And All they would right. use this as a code to talk about it with each other. But so what, what ended up actually happening, as we all know, is that all of these bombs didn't work. Mm -hmm. All these propane bombs. Dave Cullen doesn't say exactly why, but something fusing, wiring, something. I think it's much harder to blow up a giant propane tank than right. a bunch of 18-year-olds think it is. I imagine the propane tank companies have given some thought to the fact that they're selling a giant explosive and they probably don't want to make it easy. So none of these go off. So 
Eric and Dylan end up showing up at the school. They're a little bit late. They mm-hmm. set the bombs in the cafeteria. They just kind of drag in these giant heavy duffel bags and nobody really notices because oh, it's so crowded at the time. Right. I mean, they chose a time that's crowded. What was the student population at Columbine? I think it was like 17 or 1800. Is that right? It's yeah. huge. Yeah. And so they just kind of put them in the cafeteria and everyone's like, oh, you know, it looks like sports gear or whatever. So nobody really raises any alarm bells. And then they wait outside the school. This bomb outside in the suburbs doesn't go off, but they don't know this. Uh. So they just assume, well, the plan's in motion. We can't back down now. And they sit there and they wait for the cafeteria bomb to go off. It doesn't. And so eventually they're like, well, fuck it. Let's just go inside and start shooting people. And so they shoot two kids on the way into the school. Well, just to be fair, they they kill two kids. I think they shoot a handful more. Ah, uh, okay. They go in, they shoot the teacher. Then they go to the cafeteria, but I guess everybody's fled the cafeteria. Then they go to the library. And this is one of those unexplained things, that they shoot and kill lots of kids in the library. They spend a bit of time in the library. But then they sort of stop killing people like it would have been Mm -hmm. very easy for them to just go one by one through all the kids in the library and shoot all of them but for whatever reason they kill i think 10 or something like that and then they just kind of stop Mm -hmm. and they wander around the school they shoot into empty classrooms they shoot into the ceiling they throw pipe bombs they go back to the cafeteria and try to get their propane bombs to explode so they shoot at the propane tanks. They throw a Molotov cocktail at the propane tank, which sets off the fire alarm and the sprinklers. There's something really spooky about this period. It's crazy to think about the whole shooting, their like entire spate of shooting people is I think like 15 minutes. Wow. And everybody thinks of Columbine because of the media coverage, which we'll talk about as being this like hour long kind of siege, but it's really just like 15 minutes of shooting. And then there's just like you're saying, like they are just wandering around. I mean, it almost seems like a fantasy, like their fantasy was less. They murdered plenty of people and were like laughing as they did it. But this like half hour period where they're just like wandering through the school, they're in the cafeteria, there's nobody in the cafeteria. They're like picking up drinks that people had left behind and like drinking drinks and like throwing things around and like just shooting in the air. They're just kind of like fucking around in this. The school has been emptied out and the fire alarm is blaring and there are strobe lights and they're just kind of, yeah, like shooting in empty windows, shooting in empty classrooms, shooting out windows. They're like apparently making eye contact through the windows and classroom doors at people who are huddled in classrooms, but but they don't go in and try to kill them. It's, it's baffling. The way I feel when I imagine that is that you have this elaborate plan that you've been thinking about for a really long time. It's like a wedding. Inevitably, when the day actually comes and it happens and it's over, you're going to feel like the thing that your entire life has been geared toward is done. And you had this plan for what it was going to be, and it wasn't that. And you don't get the glory and the sense of defeating people or society. I, Whatever you thought would come from that, like your own intelligence has been questioned. And then if you're just walking around shooting people at random, like maybe that would just, you would just be like, this doesn't even feel like anything. The feeling of why even bother? Right. Well, and... You're just still you. It's still you. Yeah. Yeah. And so eventually the whole thing kind of peters out. They shoot out the window a couple times, sort of half-heartedly. The cops shoot back, but don't hit them. And then eventually they just kind of sit down and shoot themselves. And that's sort of it. 
What's really interesting and tragic about this is that because there had been no active shooters like this at schools before, there weren't really SWAT team or police protocols. There's Mm. 300 police officers outside. It's essentially the entire SWAT team, police department. It's essentially all of the police officers in Denver, Colorado are there. Yeah, but even the ones who mostly make copies are there. They don't know how many shooters there are because first, Eric and Dylan wore trench coats to hide, not because they're in the trench coat mafia, but just to hide their weapons. They wore trench coats. And then eventually during their killings, they took them off. So some kids saw shooters wearing t-shirts. Some kids saw shooters wearing trench coats. So the police think there's four shooters. Hmm. So the police... As of 12.08 p.m., which is when they shot themselves, the police have no idea that they've shot themselves. They think this is all still going on. So another three hours goes by where the SWAT teams get into the school, but the other end of the school, and of course, because it's a school for 2,000 kids, it's a massive building. The SWAT team is slowly closing in on the killers, having no idea how many killers there are, what they look like, or whether they're still roaming around shooting. And so it takes ages for anyone to figure out that this has actually been over for three hours and these there's 250 kids huddling in various classrooms and closets and whatever. Wow. But by the time the SWAT team finally figures this out, one of the teachers who's been shot bleeds to death okay. during this three hours. This leads to all kinds of lawsuits later. But there's no there's no protocols. There's no rules for how to deal with an active shooter situation. One of the articles I read said that the, now the protocols are all about As soon as an event like this happens, the cops will go in and find the shooter and neutralize them like that is the first goal. You rush in, you rush toward the shooter and you stop Mm -hmm. that person immediately. Whereas at this time they were like, oh, we don't know what's going on. We're just going to go slowly. And so for an entire afternoon, the whole country is watching this live. All of Denver, of course, is watching this live. The entire police department is watching this live. But nothing happens for this entire three hours. It's kind of this this slow realization that this event has been over for hours. I think one of the really interesting things about that timeline, too, is that because it elapses over such a long period of time, the media can like really get in there. It's it's like an ongoing media event. All these previous mm. school shootings, they were just these really quick eruptions. They were probably like right. two minutes long or something. And the media gets there and all you can show is crime scene tape around a school or something. Yeah. But this, you have like live action unfolding, like SWAT teams running in, kids running out. I think they started shooting at 11.20 and the media was there by 11.30. Oh, wow. And then the other thing that I thought was so fascinating was, you know, this is in an upscale suburban area. This is one of the first kind of ongoing shooter hostage casualty events where people have cell phones. And so you have kids, you know, they call into 911, 911, it's like blocked because too many people are calling so that they start calling the TV news station. And so you have Mm. like kids hiding who are talking to like news anchors live on the air, which Mm. this is, I think, one of the first times that you see that happening and that adds to i think some of the misinformation certainly and the the visceral feeling like we're not we're not arriving at this story once it is complete we are watching it as it unfolds right. and i think that like latches latches in in a different way it just seems based on that that the things that really rivet us and that then become these media events because our emotions were so affected by them and the people around us and our communities were so affected by them because something does become yours even if you Mm. had no involvement in it at all. And I feel like the things that make those 
events as powerful as they are is that we come to them when they're ongoing. When we watched September 11th on TV, at first nobody knew it was going on. And they had all these different commentators on the different channels saying, well, it could have been maybe a prop plane, just could have been a random accident. You know, everyone was trying to figure it out together. Yeah, you're sort of sharing in the confusion and the panic. Yeah. And we feel like it's happening to us in a way that we hadn't with any previous really mass shooting or school shooting. Yeah. What's interesting is so even amidst the shooting, these myths were starting to form. One of the origins of these myths that Eric and Dylan were bullied starts with newscasters interviewing students outside of the school. It's a massive school. So the vast majority of students didn't know Eric and Dylan. And we don't know who the shooters were at that point. We don't know until later that evening. So when the newscasters start asking students, hey, you know, what do you think could have motivated this? What do you think is going on? There's these rumors already of the trench coat mafia. So the the trench coat mafia thing starts before the event is even over because we have this description of the shooters as wearing a trench coat. And students at Columbine are aware that there's this thing called the trench coat mafia. So in their minds, those Mm. two things get conflated. The killers were wearing trench coats. I know there's this thing called the trench coat mafia. Therefore, they must be the same thing. And so there was a trench coat or what was known as the trench coat mafia at the school, but Eric and Dylan were not in it. This is an interview with Time Magazine right after the shooting with some kid from Columbine named Todd. And I just think this is so emblematic of the kind of coverage that this got immediately afterwards. Columbine is a clean, good place, except for those rejects, Todd says, of Klebold and Harris and their friends. So the thing is, Todd is describing the Trenchcoat Mafia, but Todd is conflating the Trenchcoat Mafia with Eric and Dylan, who he probably didn't know because it's a giant high school. Most kids don't want them there. They were into witchcraft. They were into voodoo dolls. Sure, we teased them, but what do you expect with kids who come to school with weird hairdos and horns on their hats? They're a bunch of homos grabbing each other's private parts. If you want to get rid of someone, usually you tease them. So the whole school would call them homos. Good God. It's all there, right? This is just a perfect distillation of the way that the popular kids are viewing the misfits. Todd is so interesting because... He's self-aware enough to be able to describe methodologically what he does to psychologically destroy a (laughs) classmate, which is, well, if you call them homos, then everyone will call them homos. That's how that works. And he knows what he does, but he doesn't know that it's horrible. And Rachel, maybe you have a different description, but this is kind of my understanding of the way that this trench coat mafia bullying misfit narrative took hold is because Columbine really did have a problem with bullying. I mean, Columbine Hmm. was a big, mean, hierarchical high school and people were really shitty to each other. And so it was an available heuristic for explaining what was going on because that's what people knew about the school was that these jocks were tyrannical assholes and there were a lot of misfits at the school and everything fell into place around that narrative really quickly. And it was true. It just wasn't true of these particular two people. Well, one of the big issues that a lot of people have with the Cullen book is that Mm. he oversimplified. He's got some theses and he is a little bit oversimplified with them. And we can talk about the psychopath thing later. But I think the bully thing is another one where one of the big things that he thumps in his book is Eric and Dylan, they were not bullied. They were popular. Dylan went to prom. They had friends. They weren't these, you know, miserable loners. They weren't in the trench coat mafia. 
But there's an incident that everybody always talks about that he that he just sort of d- doesn't address in his book that's pretty well documented. Dylan's mom, Sue Klebold, writes about it in her book where I think both Eric and Dylan, certainly Dylan, are like pelted with ketchup in the cafeteria oh, yeah. and called faggots or something. And, and Dylan, right. in Sue Klebold's book, she writes about it. He comes home. He's covered in ketchup. She's like, what happened to you? And he's like, I don't want to talk about it. It was the worst day of my life. It's it's just this funny thing of needing somehow, I don't understand why you would want to elide that from your book. The sense that I get is they were bullied and they bullied other kids. That's my memory of what like what high school was like. It's not this totally. super strict hierarchy. Somebody can have friends and still be tortured a little bit. Yeah. There's also one of the videos, one of the like famous videos, because that's another reason this like has Columbine has such legs is these kids were constantly documenting themselves and there's one where you can just see like eric and dylan are walking down the hall like waving waving at girls and everybody's smiling at them and then these four jocks come and just sort of hit them you know and like almost knock him over and i mean you just get the sense it's almost like that scene from that video is like if you were making an overdetermined high school movie and you're like how do we want to show like (laughs) this kid is bullied you know like let's walk down the hall and have these two jocks like smash him yeah he leaves that out of the narrative i mean my theory is that like he got so close to that school and to so many wounded people Mm. that it was was too harmful or something. You, I don't know. You yeah. get this sometimes when you report, or maybe you guys don't, but like you get close to somebody, you kind of want to leave out the bad parts oh, of yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You feel really protective, especially like the school. They had just gone through this terrible trauma. Yeah. That was also my theory. Eric and Dylan, like everyone else at that school, were bullied. And like everyone else at that school, they bullied other people because yeah. you could call kids fags in the hallway and no one's going to tell you to stop. So other people can call you fags and you call other people fags and nobody really cares. And that's how you keep the whole fag system running is because everyone has enough ability to abuse someone else that you're not completely a victim all the time. I feel like that's what makes bullying sustainable. What's hard about this is that every explanation that you come up with is true. Like there's also the explanation that these guys were driven by this huge sense of entitlement and this huge sense of aggrievement, whether with reason or not, but just this generalized anger against everyone else around them. There's an incident where Klebold is playing flag football in gym class and a girl like tells him he's being too rough and he's like, you fucking bitch. And he like goes off on her. Mm. And there's letters that he writes to girls, both of them actually, letters that they write to girls and ways that they treat girls that are just appalling. Like one girl breaks up with Eric and he's like, you fucking skank. I fucking like really gross stuff that he emails to her. Also, Eric chose Event Horizon for a date movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is this is the thing is that there's also the psychopath explanation for Eric that basically he's a complete monster and that nothing ever would have saved him. That's also true. I mean, if you look at if you want to find evidence for any of these explanations, you will find them. You can't really ever boil it down to just one thing. It's like each one of these explanations has really good evidence for it and really good evidence against it. Should we quickly say, just like give the quick kind of general take maybe that like Eric Harris, Dylan Klebold generally gets portrayed as Dylan is the sad, suicidal, depressed one. And Eric Harris was like the super aggro planner who had a, you know, a website about how everybody he hated 
and that Dylan, the depressed kid, got kind of roped into this plan. Dylan wanted to die. Eric wanted to kill. Right. So there's this passage from this article that I found kind of weighing all the different explanations for Eric and Dylan. And it mentions, again, just like the bullying explanation in some ways makes sense and it doesn't make sense. The Nazi explanation also kind of makes sense and kind of doesn't make sense. So Eric and Dylan are both fascinated with Nazis. There's apparently in the library, Eric called one of the students the N-word before shooting him. But then this article also mentions in the library, apparently... Before shooting a fat person, he said mean things about their weight. Before shooting someone with glasses, he said mean things about four eyes or whatever, that he kind of wanted to humiliate everybody before he shot them, and that the N-word was just another way to humiliate someone before shooting them. It wasn't something that he was necessarily animated by, but it's also not necessarily not something that he was animated by, right? I mean, he did have this idea of superiority. If you read his, one of his websites, he has like the list of things he hates and it's like country music, people who walk slow in the mall, you know, like some of it, it's weird to read because part of it, you're like, yeah, kind of, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> but then one of his is like, I hate racists. And you're like, oh, huh, really? That's funny. But then he goes on this like extremely long, you know, it's all written like rant about how racist and you're like, oh, yeah, Eric Harris, I kind of agree with you. He's like, it's so stupid thinking somebody's like better or worse than you because of like their race. That's so dumb. People who think that should be. And then he goes on this extremely violent fantasy about what should happen to racists. And you're like, oh, uh. I don't know. And then like how (laughs) women who are racist should be raped by the person, by a person from the race that they hate and then killed. And then it just becomes this incredibly sadistic fantasy. And I think it's exactly like what you're saying or what this person is saying in this article. It's sort of like the hate is primary and then it attaches itself to like whatever ideology is like convenient in the moment, but it's not, uh, it's not super well thought out. It's like, seems more emotional than intellectual yeah Yeah. so the theory that dave cullen puts forth in his book which i have very complicated thoughts on Hmm. is essentially that eric harris is a psychopath he has no empathy for anybody he lies for fun and profit he lies constantly he manipulates people constantly he seems to enjoy doing it he's got these obsessions with violence he's got these journal entries of i you know these long descriptions of like you were saying I want to tear his throat out and rip his arms off. I mean, just really, really gross Hmm. stuff. And so what Cullen, one of the things that Cullen says in his book is Eric killed for two reasons, to demonstrate his superiority and to enjoy it. That's kind of his theory on Eric. I mean, one of the things that I found really chilling was the extent to which Eric did seem to enjoy the library stuff. I mean, the fact that he was yeah. teasing people, the fact that before he shot this poor girl in the head, he said peekaboo. What do you think he liked more, though, teasing people or murdering people? It doesn't seem like he had any genuine empathy. It doesn't seem like his heart ever went out to anybody. It seems like he just had this boiling Mm -hmm. anger and this way of harming people without any remorse and he was good at manipulating authority figures which is not necessarily a sign of being a psychopath it's just a sign of being a teenager but he was (laughs) remarkably good at it i mean one of the more chilling details was that him and dylan about a year before the shooting they get arrested for breaking into somebody's van they Mm -hmm. get busted they're about to go to jail eventually they get sent to diversion therapy which involves counseling and all this kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and he writes these 
extremely manipulative essays where he talks about, I never told anybody this before, but that night in the police station, I locked myself in the bathroom and I cried thinking about my future. Oh, I so would have done that if I were sent to diversion class. Well, okay, let me just take the the manipulativeness of the psychopath idea to the mat briefly and lovingly. And you know my position on the idea of the psychopath. I want to hear you talk about this, though, because the whole time I was reading this section, I was like, I want to know what Sarah thinks. (laughs) (laughs) You know what's funny is that I read that book only five or six years ago, but that was well before I came to my current position, which is that there is no such thing as the psychopath. Okay. It's a label that we apply to a lot of different people who have expressed similar behaviors for different reasons and often enmeshed reasons. So there's trauma, there's personality disorder, like borderline, there's literally having a head injury, there's growing up with a history of insecure attachment or abuse or just any of the the manifold life circumstances that would make it difficult for you to empathize with others and to be opportunistic in the way that you relate to other people. Because also most people that we call psychopaths and sociopaths are not violent and don't display violent behavior at all. It's much more frequently a diagnosis that women apply to men who've broken up with them suddenly (laughs) on the internet. To me, one of the things that's really interesting about this is like, well, the psychopath is manipulative and he's smart and he knows how to play people like a fiddle. And it's like, all right, listen, for me saying, well, he was in this diversionary program and he made up this thing that didn't happen and talked convincingly but falsely about his remorse. It's like, yeah, that's what you do when you're somewhat intelligent and somewhat capable and you get in a situation where you need to grease the wheels a little bit. Really, I feel like the manipulativeness claim is really saying that we're scared of people who are able to be intelligent about the bad faith out of which they are acting. You know, so we're saying he's scary because he was smart. I also, I mean, the, the thing that bothers me about the psychopath label in this context and in general is that it, it becomes, it's this totalizing thing. Mm. Yeah. There are times at which in these journal entries, Eric Harris is, you know, saying like, oh, I feel bad for my parents or I wish I didn't have to do this, but I do, or like, I'm so sad. Mm. And all of those get interpreted as like, oh, but he knew that we were going to be reading and <laughs> analyzing his diaries. So he wrote this in there. It's the monster thing, right? You want to think of somebody yeah. as like 100% manipulative and like soul and unable to care about other people when it seems to me like he had some feelings. There were some things he felt bad about. There were some people he liked and then other people he could like totally murder without caring. And that that kind of ambiguity is a lot scarier because you can't write that person off as much. Like that person does Mm -hmm. love his mom. Like he didn't shoot his parents, but he's not allowed to to be sort of like an 85% bad, 15%. (laughs) Good kid. I I go back and forth on the Eric being a psychopath thing because I actually was arrested when I was 14 for shoplifting and I did go to diversion and I did fucking lie in all my essays about how remorseful I was. I mean, diversion was such a joke. It's measuring how white and suburban you were. If you can make these appeals and Eric totally did this too. He knew exactly what to do to be like, oh, I have this bright future ahead of me. If you can play that role of I'm someone with a bright future, please don't derail this bright future that I have. It's Mm -hmm. really easy to manipulate authority figures into, I mean, his diversionary counselor at the end of this process, like writes on his uh, essay that he turns in, like she writes something like, I would let you babysit my kids anytime, or I would let you mow my lawn anytime or something like that. Like she is in. 
So I saw actually a lot of my own teenage shitheadery in Eric Harris. But then on the other hand, I have to keep reminding myself that this ended with a kid planting a bunch of bombs and murdering 13 people. It's not like we're trying to evaluate a kid with no evidence of the fact that he's really, really, really troubled. We're not looking at the evidence for this in just like, oh, look at his journal entries. Fair and that's point, all we have counselor. to go on. He, he <laughs> killed 13 people and he wanted yeah. to kill hundreds. I mean, you've kind of talked me out of believing in true monsters, but it's like, that's some real monster shit to say peekaboo to somebody before you shoot them in the face. It's monstrous. Let me tell you about my other main problem with the psychopath diagnosis. So there's A, that it's oversimplifying, and B, that it allows us to distance the quote-unquote psychopath or sociopath because the terms are interchangeable and we've been using them in both identical and contradictory ways yeah. for 60 years, is that it allows us to distance that figure from humanity and to claim that they're not human. And even if we don't get into the weird-ass writing about this from alleged psychologists, psychiatrists, professionals, professors in the criminal justice area who will talk about psychopaths being pure evil and having no soul and being all this kind of weird, you know, prosecutor pointing at Damien Eccles kind of a thing. Even if we don't bring in that, there is this trend and this kind of ex- undertone in the psychiatric literature about the psychopath and the sociopath and the antisocial personality disorder that they are born that way. They will always be that way. They will die that way. They will never learn empathy. They will never learn yeah. even one iota more of empathy than they have at birth and they cannot feel and they never will. It is genocidal language. And so I feel like if you use the word psychopath, you're inviting an understanding of that kind of like, we are not talking about people, we are talking about something more like lizard people. It's like super predators. I mean, this is the same logic behind super predators of like, we're just taking away any idea that these people can be saved. Or ever could have been. The author of this book, Columbine, that we're talking about, Dave Cullen, I listened to a bunch of interviews with him, and he's convinced that if Eric Harris had been somehow kept from blowing up Columbine, he would have done something else. He would have been an abusive husband, probably. Well, I mean, this is the thing. We, we have no way of knowing, but the author, the fact that the author of this book is convinced that Eric would have carried out mass murder even if he had been thwarted on this particular occasion, I think it's very telling that he thinks, mm-hmm. he, he does think of it as an immutable characteristic. And one of the reasons why I do sort of think that his book sucks is that there's this passage where he's talking about the science of psychopaths. And if you look at their brain scans, they look at stimulus differently. And he says, Eric was never subject to a brain scan, but if he was, oh my God, you probably would have seen something totally different than another human. Dave. Yeah. Dave! Probably. My closing thoughts on this is that <laughs> if we take away the words psychopath and sociopath, and evil too, if we want to really go for it, if we take those words out of our vocabulary and then try and describe cruel or sadistic or violent or senselessly destructive acts carried out by human beings on other human beings then we leave ourselves with the challenge of trying to actually describe what happened within the realm of the human and conceiving of that behavior as human behavior and attempting to actually understand that more and maybe do so in a productive way rather than allowing ourselves an out by telling ourselves with the, just at the level of the language and the words that we're using that this person is not human anyway and... There's no way we could have stopped them. There's no way we can mitigate the factors that led to this happening. We can just make sure that we execute or for-profit supermax people after the fact 
This has yeah. been the conclusion of my TED talk. <laughs> I think the other thing about like the Eric psychopath Dylan depressive thing, I mean, although I think the broad strokes of that are not wrong, it also like lets Dylan off the hook. Yeah. If only psychopaths murder, then like Sarah is saying, like, well, we can't do anything about it. They're evil. We'd all we can do is lock them up. And then, like, what about these kids who, like, are not psychopaths, but still shoot people? Oh, yeah. it's only because they're in the thrall of this murder? It's like, no, this is this is a capacity in yeah. your, like, sweet, sad kid. You can't just sort of expect this to be something that only the monstrous other does. Yeah. I read Sue Klebold's book when it came out, which is was uh, two years ago, so more recently than Dave Cullen's book. And I, one of the things I found amazing about it is that she was so honest about how long it took her to accept emotionally that Dylan had been as active as he had been and that it wasn't until she saw, I think, footage of the cafeteria or some security camera footage from the school that she, years and years after the fact, that she kind of, you know, started emotionally processing that, you know, yes, he had also been actively participating and enthusiastically. Yeah, for years, the thinking was Eric had these scary journal entries. Dylan had these sad journal entries about how he wanted to die. Or Dylan, like, famously has these journal entries that are just pages and pages of hearts. Because a lot of the information didn't come out for a long time, Sue Klebold and other people were sort of able to think like, oh, he was just along for the ride. Maybe he didn't actually shoot anybody. You know, he was roped into this. He was brainwashed. And then the more the information comes out, the more you see, like, he also has journal entries where he's like, I can't wait to kill people, you know, more than a year before he kills people. Dylan doesn't shoot as many yeah. people as Eric, but Dylan shoots people. Dylan laughs. Dylan jokes. He is right in there. We can't deny his responsibility for this thing that he yeah. did. He killed a lot of people. Okay, so I wanted to read you guys this because I found an academic article that proposes a typology of school shooters. And it goes through 10 school shooters and it breaks them down into traumatized, schizophrenic, and psychopathic. I can already see our problematic Awuga fire alarm signs going off, but... And my eyeballs, yes. What he writes about Dylan, whereas the other psychotic shooters appear to have been schizophrenic, Dylan appears to have had schizotypal personality disorder. As is often the case with schizotypals, Dylan struck many people as odd. The thousands of interviews conducted by the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office contain numerous comments from Dylan's peers about his odd behavior, his greasy, dirty hair, his unusual clothes, and his general goofiness. It was the 90s. He was markedly shy <laughs> and socially awkward. He wrote about his social difficulties in his journal. Nobody accepting me, even though I want to be accepted, me doing badly and being intimidated in any and all sports, me looking weird and acting shy. Big problem. Dylan's journal also provides evidence that his thought process was disturbed. He misused language in a number of ways. He created neologisms, distorting actual words into words that do not exist. He had tangled grammar and odd passages of inarticulate content. This never became word salad as in the speech of schizophrenics, but given that Dylan was a bright young man, his misuse of language is noteworthy. Dylan also had strange ideas that appear to have been delusions. His alienation was so extreme that he apparently saw himself as not being human. He wrote, humanity is something I long for. Aw, what is schizotypal? 
is it a personality disorder? Yeah, he has delusions of grandeur and he has paranoid delusions. Uh, okay, I would just put forth two ground rules for everyone to follow <laughs> starting immediately. I think it's just always wildly inappropriate to diagnose someone based on their journal entries. It's just we have an extraordinarily low standard for the kinds of access we expect someone to have to someone, especially if they're commenting in the media or at trial about the mental health of a defendant or someone who can no longer be reached, you know, because they're dead. And we crave diagnosis so much as if that is going to be an explanation. I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things that comes out of Columbine is we have so much material, you know, like after every school shooting, there is the, the kind of why, why, why. And here you have a situation where it's like, all right, we have them on videotape talking about why we have their journals talking about why we have like them talking to their friends about why. And the question why is not answered with more material or even if they say, Mm. you know, I do this because of hate, then that is not an answer at all. There's like nothing, there's nothing satisfying. Yeah. Rachel, what do you think was going on with Dylan? What's your theory of Dylan's Dylan-ness? My sense of humans is that sometimes humans just really pursue a bad idea. <laughs> I, mean, I think about this with people's suicides. If it somehow like a week had gone by, it wouldn't have happened. You know, it doesn't take that much. And they just did this bad, really, really awful, horrific thing. But I don't I don't feel like it was a predetermined fate. Hmm. I don't know. He was super depressed. And this was this was the only thing that excited him. And he kind of tunneled into it yeah this is a a form of access in a way of socialization is so interesting because teenage girls have also all sorts of feelings of disconnection from humanity and rage and you know all sorts of terrifying emotions but they just seem to turn them on themselves we should get more boys having eating disorders, maybe, and then <laughs> and just channel it that way. Let's have harsher not body standards for boys. More wrestling in our schools. <laughs> channel it in, not out. I think now would be a good time to get into the other thudding myths of Columbine and all of the stuff that we really got all wrong. Right. So let's have the thudding myths. This is like Fast Money and Family Feud. Rachel, do you want to talk about Cassie? Cassie is so sad. I find this whole thing. Me too. It's so dark. So upsetting. Uh, so Cassie Burnell is the girl who said yes. <sighs> the mythology of it is that she was in a library when the shooting was happening. I believe it was Eric who was like, do you believe in God? She said yes, and he shot her. And then a book about that was uh, the scholastic sales for hundreds of years. Yeah, and she becomes a martyr. It gets picked up by like the Washington Post. Her parents go on Oprah. Huge book deal. There's a big evangelical reaction to Columbine. And so this becomes this guiding narrative of the aftermath of the shooting that, you know, we have these boys inspired by Satan and this this martyr standing up to them. And she is going to inspire this awakening. There were some people saying that she should be like whatever the Protestant equivalent of sainthood is, that she should be the first person in America in like hundreds of years to get that status. I mean, it's, yeah. it's wow. huge, right? It's wow. and it, because in the aftermath of this like really awful thing about what teenagers do, here's like a story about a good and noble teenager. Yeah. But mm-hmm. it is just so sad because it's not true at all. So 
according to Dave Cullen's book and according to witnesses and the entire time in the library was recorded because somebody called 911 mm. and left their phone on. So everything that happened in the library, it hasn't been released to the public, but it's on tape. So this incident did not happen. So essentially what happened was this poor girl, Cassie, is hiding under the table. There's a girl named Emily next to her. And Eric and Dylan are walking around the library with their guns out. It's awful. They come to the table with Cassie. They lean down. They say peekaboo, nothing else. And they shoot her in the head. And that's it. That's the whole incident. And Eric does specifically, right? Eric's the one that does that. But then separately, also in the library, I don't know if this was later or earlier, there's another girl in the library named Valine Schnur. Dylan shoots her. This is an excerpt from Dave Cullen's book. Val dropped to her knees, then her hands. Blood was streaming out of 34 wounds. Oh my God, oh my God, don't let me die, she prayed. Dylan turned around. God, do you believe in God? He asked. She wavered. Yes, I believe in God. Why? Dylan asked. Because I believe, and my parents brought me up that way. Dylan reloaded, but something distracted him. He walked off. Val crawled for shelter. Wow. So some version of this incident did actually happen to a girl who lived. And it's this really sad story where one of the other kids in the library whose sister is killed, he's the one who kind of is the originator of this story of Cassie the martyr. And there's just this awful moment where he is like months after the shooting, they take the kids who survived back to the library as this kind of like confront your trauma, you know, just sort of say goodbye before we like level this place. And they're sort of with the investigators walking back through it. And he's like, yes, she was right here. Cassie was right here. And this is where she said her martyr thing. And they're like, no, Cassie was on under the table, like way over there. He's like, no, she was here pointing to where Val, the girl who did say this Mm. was when the investigators very gently are like, no, I'm sorry, he goes and throws up or something. I mean, it's just, again, this, like, memory thing. Like, he had this very fixed idea of what had happened, but he just sort of scrambled the people. It's also really sad because the other people who were in the library, Emily, Val, are kind of gently trying to say, like, well, no, actually, this is what happened. Val starts to, you know, tell her story of being wounded and saying this. And because Cassie's story has got this, like, media momentum behind it, everybody's like, are you sure that happened, Val? You know, like, are you sure you're not trying to get attention? Yeah, it's really sad. There's also the huge moral conundrum of this poor girl, Emily, who was there and watches Cassie get killed, watches this awful interaction take place. But she also knows that this martyr story isn't true because she was sitting next to her. Her dilemma is like, well, do I come forward and say, look, sorry, Cassie's parents who are understandably in mourning and whose daughter's death is given meaning through this right they're doing speaking tours where this is the good thing that will come out of this horrible tragedy and it's also this wonderful story in that cassie was a really troubled kid she was using drugs she was suicidal she eventually became born again i think it was six months or a year before this happened she really had taken on this extremely strong christian identity so this martyrdom really works with her identity that she had become this very vocal Christian in the months before she died. This also worked for her parents because her parents had sent her to rehab and sort of pushed her into evangelical Christianity. So to them, it was almost like a triumph. Like, look, our daughter was so reformed that she 
could do this in her dying breath. Right. She had, I think there were like letters to a friend or something. And she would write about stat, like draw pictures of stabbing teachers or killing her parents, like very similar to what comes out in Eric's and Dylan's diaries. But it's like, no, but she became good. So again, yeah, it's like this very comforting. Mm. If these boys had just found Jesus instead of finding Satan, like they could have been like her. It makes her last moment noble or at least about something. It's like something you would do in a moral philosophy graduate studies class. You are Emily, (laughs) right? You know this story isn't true. Keeping silent allows this lie to linger. But in in a way, it's this totally harmless lie. It's this girl who seems like a really nice person who gets to have this amazing martyrdom and this meaning to her death that otherwise yeah. you know, that nobody else got you don't want to take it away from her but on the other hand there's this girl who this actually happened to and yeah. who's being kind of dragged through the mud and because she didn't die whoever gets injured in these things we always forget about it's always the death right. count not the injury count and so this poor girl Val is just like are you sure, sweetie? Are you sure you're not trying to steal that story from Cassie? Oh, my God. And so Emily eventually does decide to come forward, but she comes forward anonymously to the Rocky Mountain News, to the Denver newspaper. Wow. But they won't print it because they're like, we can't print anonymous accusations huh. of this nature because everyone is latching onto the story so much. And eventually Salon, this is actually Dave Cullen writing for Salon in 1999, prints oh, wow the actual, the true story, because again, this is all on tape, right? So it's also not a super well-kept secret. He writes about it for Salon, and then because it's appeared in Salon, then the Rocky Mountain News can publish it. They're like, according to a report in Salon, and then they can add their own reporting to it. And you're not the messenger who's maybe going to get shot. And this is one of my great takeaways from this, and one of the more depressing takeaways from this, is that all of the myths of Columbine were actually debunked in the first six months after the shooting. I mean, the vast majority of them, not this problematic psychopath diagnosis of Eric, but almost Mm -hmm. every other myth busting of the trench coat mafia, they weren't in it, of they weren't bullied, they weren't outcast, the whole Cassie thing. All of that stuff was debunked within six months. But the problem is the story, the false narrative had been told so many times that if you miss the news cycle on a day or two when everyone's saying, oh, this Cassie Bernal thing didn't really happen. If you happen to be doing something else with your life those two days, you're just going to revert back to the story that you've heard a million times. And the the media never really updated its story. So when the media kind of did these retrospectives one year, five year, 10 year later, they didn't really correct their narratives. Hmm. And so all of, I mean, that's, It's kind of dark that, you know, the media in the days after the event really fucked things up. But the media a year after and five and ten years after fucked it up, too, and that they never returned to ask, was this the right narrative or do we have any sort of duty to correct the record on this? And so that's why the vast majority of these myths persist is because they just – we all heard the wrong story 50 times and we've only heard the right story maybe once. I think it's also – a further illustration of how the there's so much rhetoric about like centering the victim, celebrating the victim, mm. but when actual victims step up and give like a slightly complicated story or something that's not exactly what we want to hear or what we want the victim narrative to be, we're like, oh, actually, please be quiet and go away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we want to, we would prefer to celebrate the victims 
in the way that we have already decided that the victims are. In some ways, a dead victim is better because a dead victim can't be like, actually, I disagree or that's not what happened. I mean, another thing too is the way that this affected Columbine afterwards. I thought one thing that was really interesting was, of course, after this horrible shooting, all the kids go to other high schools to finish out the year. And then Columbine reopens the next September for new students. Imagine being a freshman going into school that day. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's of course, this huge media event. It's a, it's a total circus. And because the kids are so sick of Columbine being a byword for tragedy, they do a thing on the opening of school where students and parents hold hands in a big circle around the reopened Columbine and prevent the media from getting in. Oh, wow. The media was a really convenient scapegoat and a deserved scapegoat in some extent for everything that the town had gone through, that the actual people were tired of getting microphones shoved in their faces and they were tired of Columbine being a synonym for tragedy and school shooting. And so they sort of decided without any other scapegoat, right? There's no, no one went to jail for this. There's no one we can really blame. We're just going to blame the media. And so it became like kids would have t-shirts saying, I don't want to talk on them. And they they would walk around with them. It's, it, it was something that, The entire town was really sick of being the center of the nation's attention. Yeah, and I think one of the other mythologies that tie into that is this idea of, and then the town united. You hear this after many different kinds of tragedies that actually it brought us all together and we Mm -hmm. united and we are stronger when there was a huge amount of division within the community. Yeah. Um, After the massacre, lots of fighting between various churches, assigning of blame, the NRA conference was supposed to be or was in Denver, like the next week or something, you know, how how can we talk about guns or not talk about guns? And then the media becomes this figure that like, well, we can all agree to be angry at them. Yeah. And so I mean, Dave Cullen's book mentions that the only two people to go to jail for this are the two, essentially teenagers who set up the gun buy. So one of the oh, kids yeah. is the one that he bought the Tech 9 for Dylan, I think, at the gun show. He made $9 on it. He bought it for $491 and he sold it to Dylan for 500 and he went to jail for 18 years. And a big thing was wow. that people wanted someone to pay and they looked into the parents. There was the investigators looked into charging the parents. What were they going to try to charge them with? Well, negligence or I don't know, something. 83% of the country blamed the parents. This was sort of where the country landed on Columbine was because they couldn't really blame. I don't know why they couldn't blame the school or they couldn't blame investigators, but people hated the Klebolds and the Harrises and they had to really go underground after this because everybody was just assuming that they must have known or they must not have prevented it or whatever. And that was where a lot of the anger went. Or they must have done something abhorrent to make their children be like, I mean, I don't even know if people articulate these theories, but it feels like the need to blame the parents is the need to just, you know, the contagion theory. Or that you would know. Sue Klebold writes about that a lot. Like, of course you would know. If you were a good parent, you would know if your kid was going to do something like that. And that's sort of the horror of her book is she presents herself as this very reasonable, loving parent. And she didn't know. Like Columbine was sort of at the beginning of the internet and like kids easy access to like having online lives. 
totally invisible to their parents. And also, yeah, and Eric was cooking, Eric was finding recipes for napalm online, and he was cooking napalm in his parents' kitchen on the weekends when they were away. Really? In the kitchen? Napalm is hard, apparently, to make, and there were, like, dozens of tries. So he would get materials online or in grocery stores or whatever, and he'd try it, and it wouldn't work, and he'd go set it on fire in the back of his house, and it didn't work, and then he'd try again. And this went on for months. Napalm is really difficult. And so, again, because the internet was new, this idea that your kids could be on the internet doing shit like this was just totally unfathomable in those days. One of the other overlooked aspects of this is that there was also a a huge and extremely successful cover-up by the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office that... Always a cop cover-up. My God. I mean, they had a warrant to search Eric Harris's house more than a year before the shooting. His friend, Brooks Brown, they had gotten in some fight, and Eric had vandalized his house and written crazy shit about him on the internet and sent it to him and and snitched to his parents, your kid is hiding liquor in his room. And Brooks Brown's parents had gone to the cops 15 times about (gasps) Eric. They had called over and over and over again and said, this kid is writing violent shit on the internet. He's threatening our son. He's doing weird shit in the middle of the night with other kids. You need to look into this person. And the cops just never did anything about it. Well, they did it like halfway. They pr- they, they had a file and they printed out yeah. his website and they got a search warrant and then just didn't do it. And then they just got the mid-afternoon blahs and they put it in a folder and, and did some other stuff, I guess. Yeah. And as soon as Columbine happened, these papers start disappearing from Eric's file. They start getting what? purged oh. from the online database. Eventually, there's all these lawsuits by the parents of the victims because they start to get a whiff of everything that the cops have done. At one point, the cops finally, five or six years after the shooting, the cops release a bunch of documents, but they redact a bunch of shit without telling anybody. So they have page numbers, but they forgot to not number the pages that they removed. (laughs) So the parents, the parents are looking through these giant files of documents and it's like page 7, 8, 9, 31, 32, 33, (laughs) 84, 85, 86. And the parents are like... Come on, guys. And they're like, well, we didn't think anyone would actually read them. So it's like for years, it's like they'll release 3,000 pages and they're like, that's it, folks. And then the parents are like, no. And they release 5,000 more and they're like, that's it, folks. And the parents are like, no. And then they release 6,000 more. And so eventually there's 24,000 pages of documents get released. And not all of it's from before the shooting. Some of it's Uh interviews afterwards and stuff like that. But they had tons of information about how bad these kids were beforehand. And they didn't do anything about it. But the smart thing about the cover-up was that the cover-up took so long that the nation's attention had completely moved on by that point. We're learning this over and over again. Same with the Ron Contra. You wait it out. Yeah, so they waited it out. And by the time this came out, nobody other than the Denver press really knew or cared. And like beyond that, they gave a press conference and explicitly said, do you know what we don't know? And then like went through all the things that they knew and yeah. explicitly denied them. And had, like, secret meetings about how we're all going to deny this. I mean, it was, like, a very clear and overt cover-up. Yeah, it's like an actual, like, conspiracy theory, an actual conspiracy. Like, just a classic conspiracy. Let's meet and conspire, (laughs) and maybe Barb will have one of our pound cakes. I mean, this brings me back also to one of my my other major problems with the psychopath, which is that the psychopath's best friend is the cop 
and the prosecutor. Because the whole draw of the psychopath, too, if you're in a position of, of power, if you're defending our legal system and all its flaws, is like, look, the psychopath can outwit everybody. If the cops didn't see it coming, then it's because he's so brilliant, because he's superhumanly brilliant and evil. And it's like, you can focus on that narrative, ignore the fact that there was an unexecuted search warrant involved in this yeah. story. And they were telling kids at school, and Dylan wrote an essay for school about somebody walking in and killing a bunch of people, and his teacher talked about how bad it was. And At the time, though, we also held police to a higher standard than high school English teachers, weirdly. I yes. mean, we don't anymore, but we did in the 90s. If the cops had searched his room, they would have found pipe bombs. They would have found a shitload of guns. I mean, these kids were not good at hiding it. So that search warrant actually probably would have made a difference. Yeah, they were really not that sneaky. I'm also really interested in how the aftermath moves so quickly away from any response related to guns and becomes very quickly about, you know, like, how do we toughen up our schools? What comes out of this is this huge school security industry. I lost like half a day the other day because I was Googling. There are all these school security consultants treating your high school like it's, you know, needs like military grade defense Studies have been done about like the 20 years since Columbine, infinitely more school resource, school resource officers, zero tolerance policies, random locker searches, metal detectors. Basically, nobody has done expanded counseling, more mental health outreach, family programs. Well, one thing, this is not going to be a popular opinion and I may cut it out, oh, but all right. <laughs> I think one of the silver linings of Columbine and one of the things I'm kind of thankful for is that this mostly false narrative about bullying actually resulted in a national conversation about bullying and resulted in a lot of schools putting in place anti-bullying policies. I remember in the aftermath of Columbine, I remember being a bullied kid, a closeted gay and bullied kid, being really happy that I finally felt heard. Everyone came out of the woodwork and were like, I am a goth. I get stuff thrown at me all the time. There were lots of sort of day two, day five feature stories on bullying in America, the bullying crisis that were really good. And schools changed their policies and hopefully kids changed their behavior. And it's made bullying a actual social issue in a way that it just wasn't before Columbine. I, I can't be quite as optimistic because I do feel like all the attention around it did create this sense that this is sort of a way to get attention. I mean, it seems like more and more of mm. these shootings are less about like, I really feel so murderous, I can't wait to murder. But it's more just sort of like, I want people to see me and I have a point of some kind that I want yeah. to make. So we've learned good and bad things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the conversation we should have been having, obviously, is about gun control, right? I mean, that would have been the yeah. A conversation to be having. The B conversation that we ended up having was about bullying and about Marilyn Manson. And video games. Yeah, and video games and goths. And I um, I came across this quote from Diane Sawyer oh boy. right oh my God. after Columbine segment that she did. She's quoting police as saying, The boys may have been part of a dark, underground, national phenomenon known as the gothic movement. And oh, no. some of these goths may have killed before. 
Oh my god. We had goths at my high school and they were the nicest people. Oh yeah. Because they have to get up at five in the fucking morning to do all that makeup, you know? They have the <laughs> discipline of 4-H kids. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's so annoying that, like, first of all, they didn't even really listen to Marilyn Manson. Yeah, exactly. And that the idea that Marilyn Manson, after calling by Marilyn Manson, like, canceled his whole tour. Meanwhile, the NRA convention is in Denver, like, that week. Yeah. One of the dark <sighs> legacies of this that Dave Cullen mentions in one paragraph of his book is that the Colorado State Senate convenes to try to close the gun show loophole and then as a result of nra lobbying doesn't so they just do nothing not even at the state level then people put it on the ballot and it passes overwhelmingly as a ballot referendum so colorado no longer has the gun show loophole what we should have done is guns what we ended up doing is bullying bullying and also like toughening up school police militarizing policing turning schools into this lockdown when I was in fifth grade, my favorite show was South Park. So it's not at all as if I was an outsider to sort of prevalent American pop culture, but just having this idea that like the teens, the teens, the teens like all this scary stuff. And they have this teen culture that makes them do scary things and beware of the teen media. And then you look at it and look at how that created such a smokescreen. Violent video games, sure. Like, let's add that to the mix. But you're not going to explain all that much of it with video games alone. You're not ever going to explain violence with pop music, I don't think. And in the meantime, guns are a part of adult culture. If we throw the focus on the teens and their scary things and their goth makeup and their chokers, yeah, then we can ignore what all the adults are doing and be like, the adult Americans all convene once every two years to try and enact laws by suggesting reasonable things and then arguing about them for months and then doing three or four things in a last minute frenzy in the last week. It's an interesting culture. <laughs> Can I end with a quick story? Yes. <laughs> One of the reasons why I have such a chip on my shoulder about not telling anything about the killers from their diaries is that I had a social studies class in seventh grade where a teacher made us journal for the first 15 minutes of class. And he said, write down whatever personal things, whatever you're going through in your life, but I promise I won't read them. And I was immediately just like, fuck this dude. He wants to read our <laughs> private thoughts. He wants me to write down what's going on at home and he wants to use this as a surveillance tactic. So I didn't, I didn't believe his, I'm not going to read it at all. So yeah. I wrote really explicit pornography in mine. <laughs> really explicit. I would love to read it now. I don't know where it went, but I'm sure it was like the most inept. I would love to read it now. <laughs> like he stuck his wiener in her like boob hole. Like I'm sure it's yeah, terrible, right. oh, terrible the boob stuff. Holes, yeah. But I just wanted to fuck with this dude because I hated this teacher. He was really <laughs> patronizing. And of course, after <laughs> six or seven days of doing this, I'm in some other class and I get a note saying, you have to come to the principal's office. And I walk into the principal's office and then there's him, the principal and my mom. And they're like, Aww. we're really concerned about your journal entries. You seem to not know what boobs are for. <laughs> <laughs> and I I just remember saying, like, well, I was doing this to prove a point. And he was like, yeah, right, mister. We're really concerned about you. And it became this whole, like, year-long argument. But anyway, oh, no. I've always thought about whenever I think about kids being judged by their journals, I think about the fact that if you went back to my journals, you would find, like, eight days straight of just explicit <laughs> pornography and be like, this kid is disturbed. What's wrong with this kid? But I was just doing it to be a dick. I wasn't actually that good at writing. The Satanist got another victim. So anyway, don't trust journals is 
has been my guiding principle ever since seventh grade. Don't trust journals and look to the adults. And Rachel, what other morals could we? Yeah, what are your lessons, Rachel? Oh, I'm bad at morals. I don't know. Burn yeah. down the internet. Burn, <laughs> burn down the internet. Yeah. Evergreen lesson. <laughs>